0: Matthew chapter 2, and I'm going to read 2 through 15. Excuse me, 1 through 15. Our topic, the Magi come to Jerusalem. The Magi see the star, they come to Jerusalem. So we'll just call this the Magi come to Jerusalem. And they're going to interact with Herod. The Magi come to Jerusalem. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, When they heard the king, they departed, and behold, the star which had been in the east, they had seen in the east, went before them until it came and stood over where the young child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceeding great joy, exceedingly great joy. And when they had come into the house, they saw the young child with Mary his mother, and fell down and worshipped him. And when they had opened their treasures, they presented gifts to him gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Then being divinely warned in a dream that they should not return to Herod, they departed for their own country another way. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream, saying, Arise, take the young child and his mother, flee to Egypt, and stay there until I bring you word, for Herod will seek the young child to destroy him. When he arose, he took the young child and his mother by night and departed for Egypt. And was there until the death of Herod, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, saying, Out of Egypt I have called my son. Now last week we began to introduce this, and uh, so I'm not going to repeat the introduction, but one of the main focuses which we talked about in the introduction was the response of Herod. the the, their king, now he's an Idumean, he's a usurper, but, he, but he's their king, he's got connections with Rome, and the Jewish leaders and so forth, uh, Herod wants to kill Jesus, and these foreigners who are Gentiles want to worship Jesus, mm-hmm. so that's the big contrast, but we'll go into more detail today. <clears throat> now, as we begin our study of the Magi, there are two questions that we want to answer right away that need to be answered to help us understand this vital section of Scripture. First, who were the Magi? From the East is a very unspecific term. Second, what was the star that directed them to Jerusalem? So we'll answer these questions and then we'll look at the text very carefully. And I'm going to go into a lot of detail, maybe too much detail, but you'll find this very interesting. The word "magi" translated "wise men" in some modern translations <clears throat> (KJV and New KJV and RSV) say "wise men," and then "wise dash men" is in the American Standard Version (1901). Magi, the NASB, astrologers in the NAS in the NEB, the New English Bible, and the word is "magi" in Greek. <clears throat> the Greek. Is Magoi, singular magos. Our word magi comes from the Latin magi, singular magus. And the Greek word is a, tra- a transliteration of the Medo Persian word, and that's the area of modern Iran, Medo Persia. The word is used by the ancient historian Herodotus to describe one of the tribes of the Medes. The word in the group it describes goes at least back to the 7th century BC, probably long before. And by the Roman period, the predominant meaning and application of the word had changed into a primarily negative term, uh, magician or sorcerer. And then we get to Acts, Simon Magus. His last name is Simon the Magician. Uh, Simon the Magician, he's purely presented as a a con artist and a, a total fraud and an evil person seeking money, which is what most people into magic today are into. Before coming to a firm conclusion, let us examine some of the views of evangelical scholars. Let's, uh, here's Alfred Eidersheim, and he's writing in um, 1883. The story of the homage of the infant savior by the Magi is told by St. Matthew in language of which the brevity constitutes the chief difficulty. Even their designation is not free from ambiguity. The term Magi is used in the the LXX, the Greek Septuagint, by Philo, Josephus, and by profane writers, alike and in an evil and, so to speak, in a good sense. In the former cases, implying the practice of magical arts, in the latter, as referring to those Eastern, especially Chalde, that's from Babylon, priest sages whose research is in great measure, as yet mysterious and unknown to us, seem to have embraced much deep knowledge, though not untinged by superstition. It is to these latter that the Magi spoken of by St. Matthew, must have belonged. Their number, to which, however, no important, importance attaches, cannot be ascertained. Various suggestions have made, been made as to the country of the East, whence they came. At the period in question, the sacerdotal caste of the Medes and Persians was dispersed over various parts of the East. And the presence of, in those lands of a large Jewish diaspora through which they might and probably would gain knowledge of the great hope of Israel is sufficiently attested by Jewish history okay, end of quote very good excellent and here's uh Samuel J Andrews who wrote a, an excellent work uh, on the life and time, uh, on the life of Jesus Christ it's called the life of our lord upon the earth and this is from 1906 <coughs> the question from whence they came is not addressed by their uh, by their name magi since magism seems to have been widely spread. It is in dispute where was the home of the Magian religion. Herodotus speaks of the Magi as a Median tribe, but they existed as a priestly order long before. It is said by Rawlinson that this form of religion was developed under circumstances unknown to us among the early, earlier inhabitants of Cappadocia, Armenia, and the Zagros mountain range and was essentially worship of the elements. And this is where we get this idea of, you know, this, the elements, the four elements. Fire, water, I think it's earth and air. I don't know exactly what they are. And in early astrology, uh, the, worst, the the four elements in astrology was very closely linked. And even when the Jews, apostate Jews, dabbled in astrology, they were into the four elements. <clears throat> when the followers of Zoroaster... Spreading southwestward from their original seat in Central Asia, came in contact with Magism, there was a partial fusion of the religious beliefs and rites. These first to to have taken place in Media, and the Magi became the priest class of the Median nation, and were later accepted as such by the Persians. To the same effect are the statements of Rogazin, The Story of Median, Babylonia, and Persia, 1888. The Magi were originally the native priesthood of that mountain region, subsequently occupied by the Needs known as the Western Iran. After the Aryans came, there was a fusion of the two religions, followed by a fusion of the two priesthoods, and the Magi became the national priestly class of media. They appear as a powerful and separate body, possessing large territories with cities of their own. They continue to be the sacerdotal order in Persia to its fall. And also under the Parthian rule, and it is said, continue to be the priestly class even to this day. By some, however, Babylonia is regarded as the home of magism because of the essential likeness to Babylonian Chaldeism. It is said by Rawlinson that a distinction was made between the terms Babylonian and Chaldean, the former being the ethnic appellation of the inhabitants at large, the latter of the small but learned section. Some find five classes of Babylonian Magi mentioned by this prophet. Babylon, See uh, uh, Daniel 2.2. 2. From Babylonian Chaldeism spread to the Assyrians and thence to the Media and later to the Persians. The question is not important for us. If Chaldeanism and Magism were in substance the same, this readily accounts for its wide diffusion. The name of Magi was a first one of honor, but lost in later times its better meaning and became among the Greeks and Romans the general dis-, dis designation of all who made pretensions to supernatural knowledge, the interpreter of dreams, and of astrological phenomena, false prophets, sorcerers, conjurers, and all dealers in the black arts. This process of deterioration can readily be understood. In the slower sense, it is used in Acts 13, 6, and 8, Elymas, uh the magus, the sorcerer, and the Latin Vulgate retains magus, end of quote. And then we'll do one more. This is a modern one. This is from 1975. D.W. James' comments are, are very helpful. In identifying the Magi in the section of the birth of Christ, Matthew 2, 1, 7, and 16, it is necessary to call attention to some significant historical background. <clears throat> Since the days of the prophet Daniel in the 6th century B.C., the fortunes of Persia and the Jewish nation have been closely intertwined. There is a strong probability that that a Jewish Median conspiracy had accomplished the fall of Babylon and gained for Cyrus the Persian undisputed supremacy in the ancient world. Persian gratitude was magnanimous. With the exception of the interlude during the reign of Cambyses, the consistent Persian policy toward the re emerging Jewish nation was overwhelmingly supportive. And we know how they were sent back and got their land, you know, they were sent back to Jerusalem and everything. Both nations had in their uh, turn fallen under the Seleucid domination in the wake of Alexander's conquest. Alexander the Great conquers everything all the way into India. He dies, and then it's split between his, I believe it's his four sons or four generals, one or the other. Both nations had in turn fallen under Seleucid domination in the wake of Alexander's conquest. Subsequently, both had regained their independence, the Jews under the Maccabean leadership, and Persians under the dominantly ruling group within the Parthian Empire. It was at this time that the Magi in their dual priestly and governmental office composed the upper house of the Council of the Magistanes, whose duties included the absolute choice and election of the king of the realm. It was therefore a group of Persian, Parthian kingmakers who entered Jerusalem in the latter days of the reign of Herod. And this helps explain Herod being troubled. At the time of the birth of Christ, probably circa 4 B.C., Herod was certainly close to his last illness. Augustus was also aged, and Rome, since the retirement of Tiberius, was without any experienced military commander. Pro-Parthian Armenia was fomenting revolt against Rome, a revolt that was successful, successfully accomplished within two years. The time was ripe for another Parthian invasion of the Buffer provinces, except for the fact that Parthia itself was racked by internal dissension. the IV, the unpopular and aging king, had once been deposed, and it was not improbable that the Persian magi were already involved in the political maneuvering requisite to choosing a successor. Remember, they're kingmakers. It is possible that the magi might have taken advantage of the king's lack of popularity to further their own interest with the establishment of a new dynasty, which could have been implemented only if a sufficiently strong contender could be found. At this point in time, it was entirely possible <clears throat> that the Messianic prophecies of the Old Testament culminating in the writings of Daniel, one of their own chief magicians, was of profound motivating significance. The promise of divinely imposed world dominion at the hands of a Jewish monarch was more than acceptable to them. Their own Persian and Medo-Persian hist- history was studded with Jewish nobles, ministers, and counselors, and in the great days of the kings themselves were apparently partly of Jewish blood, You have to remember that when the Jews returned after their captivity in Babylon, only a remnant, only a a small number of Jews returned to Jerusalem. Most Jews stayed in Babylon, which had been conquered by Medo-Persia, and that were now part of the Persian Empire. In Jerusalem, the sudden appearance of the Magi, probably traveling in force with all imaginal Oriental pomp, and accompanied by adequate cavalry escort to ensure their safe penetration of Roman territory, certainly alarmed Herod and the population of Jerusalem, as it is recorded by Matthew. It would seem as if these Magi were attempting to perpetrate a border incident that could bring swift reprisal from the Parthian armies. That's pure speculation. The request of Herod regarding them, who has been born king of the Jews, Matthew 2 2, was a calculated insult to him, who had contrived and bribed his way into that office. Uh, I don't think that part's true. I think that, that, I don't think that part's true. I think they just were there to worship Christ. In the providence of God, the messianic prophecy of the kingdom was not then fulfilled. In other words, he didn't assume his authoritative kingship. He didn't become the king with power until the resurrection from the dead, as we know. The Magi being warned in a dream, a type of communication most acceptable to them, departed to their own country. Uh, 2.12, with empty hands. Within two years, Frades the parasite son of the IV was duly installed by the Magi as the new ruler of Parthia. End of quote. I just think that's very... Uh, it's good because it gives you historical... some of the historical background what's going on here. Now, given the fact that about a period of about two years had elapsed since the appearance of the star, and the Magi appeared in Jerusalem uh when the magi appeared in Jerusalem the expression the east probably refers to the magi of babylon or persia those are i think those are the two now there were early church fathers and stuff that thought maybe arabia uh because the at the at this time the yemen king was considered to be believing in the jewish religion according to scholars but I think that's too close. I think two years is quite a while. Uh, many early Christian scholars believe the Magi were from, per- from Persia, such as Clement of Alexandria, Diodorius of Tarsus, Chrysostom, Cyr- Cyril of Alexandria, uh, Juvenus Prudentius, and many pictures of the Magi in medieval art, portraying them wearing the long Persian robes of the Magi. Those robes you see in the paintings, those big robes they're wearing, Uh, Those are Persian outfits. The um, Origen believed they were Chaldeans. And uh, John Gill believes they were Persians. The Babylonian Magi were regarded as the best astronomers, astrologers in the ancient world. And they have been credited with establishing the foundation of the planetary system, time computation, based on precise astrological calculations, and the Western calendar. So uh, their achievements were manifold, and we don't want to just look at them as a bunch of kooky magicians, which they'll descend and do, sadly. Were they corrupted by paganism? Obviously. So they weren't... Um, well, these magi were not possessors of special revelation, for they did not know the messianic would be bo- the Messiah would be born in Jerusalem. They had an influence from the true religion either passed down from Daniel or from members of the diaspora, or both because they're looking for the Jewish Messiah. They're looking for the Jewish king, the one prophesied. They couldn't learn that by seeing a star. They had to learn that somehow through divine revelation, secondhand, probably from Jews. Well, no doubt from Jews. Now, it is indeed possible, given the great influence of Daniel in Babylon, as an appointed wise man, Daniel 2.48 and 5.11, and he was the most important Magi, although he didn't use the exact title because the Magi at that time uh, were—you had to be born a Magi, but he was regarded as a special Magi. That the hope of the coming Messiah would rule over the whole world was kept alive among the Magi through the generations. And that's very, very clear, very, very clear in Daniel's prophecy. And Daniel's prophecy is so exact and so amazing saying that the Messiah must come during the Roman Empire, the Fourth Empire, uh, that liberals reject the Book of Daniel as being written before <laughs> before these events occurred. They don't, they don't accept it because it's just too specific, because they're unbelieving heretics and liars and Satanists. The fact that much of what the Magi believed was worthless, harmful, and pagan does not detract... From God's revealing the start to these men and giving them hope so they sought out God's Messiah. God may have true servants of himself in places we do not expect. Uh, The famous painter, Michelangelo, I believe it was, was a secret believer. He was a Protestant. And I I watched an excellent documentary, The Symbol of Protestantism in Italy. Uh, You find it in almost every one of his paintings. And it was the symbol of Protestantism. It was a, they had to keep it secret or they would be killed. <clears throat> God may have true servants of himself in places we do not expect. The fact, however, that they knew about the coming Messiah, messianic king could only have come to them from someone who knew about special revelation. Nature reveals the true God, Romans chapter 1. Men have no excuse. God, the God of Scripture is revealed in nature to the point where men have no excuse and they suppress that knowledge and unrighteousness and, and follow false gods. But nature does not reveal things like the Trinity. Nature does not reveal the way of salvation. We need divine revelation, and of course, because of the fall, we need special revelation, a special revelation of the moral law, because men are so undependable. Uh, as, as sinners, even look at look at professing Christians today and all their crazy views of the law and the state, supporting, a lot of evangelicals supported Biden and socialism. Yeah, nature reveals the true God, but does not reveal the way of salvation and many other crucial doctrines, such as the Trinity. So they were not Magi in the primarily negative sense. They were not sorcerers, but were astrologers slash astronomers in their own land regarded as wise men. and they were a special class of political advisors who had the task of looking for signs, interpreting dreams, and applying spiritual interpretations to current political situations. And they were widely respected, and they were very powerful in the Mesopotamian world. And they were kingmakers. The number of magi is not stated. Now, the tradition surrounding Christmas, which is all false by the way, is that there were three, based on the three gifts. Uh, we know uh, uh, this idea is pure speculation. And I think it's wrong. Such a low number is unlikely. Given the dangers of travel in those days, it was very dangerous. And the high rank of the Magi in the East, we can infer that probably many more than three were in the party. Moreover, they would have had been protected by perhaps double their number with armed bodyguards. Just like when people traveled to California in the Old West, they did it in a big wagon train and they all had a bunch of rifles because they were afraid of the Indians. Well, they were afraid of brigands in those days. Uh, It it, it was quite lawless out in the frontier. If you traveled, you, you traveled with might. Their high position and reputation as choosers of kings together with their likely significant numbers caused Herod and the leaders of Jerusalem to take their statement about the star seriously. The magi inquired in Jerusalem because it was the capital and it is the place where someone born a king would reside. So they may have just assumed, well they may have gone to Jerusalem, hey this is the place we're going to find out or they may have gone there maybe maybe he's there because it is the capital. Well let's let's look at the rising star now. The text says that these magi learned of the birth of the special king because they observe and it says his star it's a very particular star. Special astrological phenomena were seen as signs or heralds of special persons and dramatic events in the ancient world. One of the jobs of the Magi was to look for such signs. How the Magi connected the star specifically to the birth of the Messianic king, we are not told. But they did. And it seems likely that God informed them in some manner that this star was a special Jewish king star. Now, for centuries, biblical scholars and Christian um, astronomers have attempted to explain the nature of the rising of the star and its subsequent movements. And that is if the star is the same star that led them to the child's house. Okay, they go to Jerusalem. The king, Herod, says, Hey, he's, he's born in Bethlehem. Go to Bethlehem. And then a star appears... And leads them directly to the child's house, and we'll get into that. So if the star is the same star that led to the child's house, we don't know, but if it did, it's obviously supernatural. Because the account Matthew contains so little information in the word star, Greek, ashter, in biblical usage can refer to heavenly bodies, Besides what we regard as a star, can refer to planets lit up in the night sky, the alignment of planets, supernovas, and even comets. There are four main arguments, four main different views as to what the star was. And I'll just be very brief. One view is that the star was a comet. That, from the perspective of Persia, was pointing towards Jerusalem. Comets were seen as signs of the arrival of someone great in world history, or as portents of judgment. And according to, I believe, Josephus and other scholars, uh, there was a comet that appeared over Jerusalem when the Romans destroyed it. I'd have to look into that. Most astronomers have not been able to identify any comets that would have been visible in the night sky at the correct time, which would have been around 4 BC. Halley's Comet appeared too early to be the sign. It appeared in t- uh, during 12 to 11 B.C., seven to eight years before Jesus' birth. So it's just too early. But Halley's Comet did appear. Two, a common view is that the star was a planetary alignment or constellation and a conjunction of planets in the night sky. And when you have that, it'll, it'll appear very bright in the night sky, and it's visible to the naked eye. In 7 BC, there was a conjunction of Saturn and and Jupiter in the constellation of Pisces, the fish. This would have been visible to the naked eye and would have been regarded as highly significant to astrologers. In ancient times, Jupiter was regarded as a royal planet, while Saturn represented the Westlands, Judea. Pisces is said to signify the arrival of the last days. The Magi, we are told, would regard this alignment as teaching that in Judea, a king is born who will usher in the final period of history. That all fits very nicely, doesn't it? Although very clever, this view, uh, like the previous one, is simply too early. Jesus was born shortly before the death of Herod, not years before. Okay, if if that view is true, then Jesus and his family spent years in Egypt. It's just too early. We know he was born right around 4 B.C. And then number three. Another view which is better, which comports better with the uh, time of Jesus' birth, is that the star was a supernova. There was a kind of massive explosion in space that produced a very bright light that appeared in the sky only temporarily. This was the preferred theory of Johannes Kepler, a great scholar and studier of the stars, even though he also noted the planetary conjunction of 7 B.C., Chinese astrologers, who were quite good, recorded a nova which was visible for 70 days in 5 to 4 B.C., which would fit a date shortly before the death of Herod. That's the third view, a nova or supernova. Number four, and this is, I think, the best view, the view that fits the recorded facts of Matthew, that does not suffer from the problems associated with the natural astrological phenomena position, Is that the star in the sky was a supernatural manifestation placed in the sky by God? Now, many scholars generally believe that the star was seen by the Magi until they reached Jerusalem and then it disappeared for a time. But then it reappeared and then directed them to the very house where the young Jesus was living. That's what it says. Not simply to the town, but to the house. It stood over the house. This could not be a natural phenomenon. Even if one takes the position that a star appeared telling the Magi of the Jewish king's birth and they simply inferred that they needed to go to Jerusalem, the appearance of the star that takes them to Joseph's house in Bethlehem, the traditional place, or Nazareth, the more likely place, and I'll get to that, Lord willing, next week, inferred from Luke 2.39, and the fact that Joseph and Mary were from Nazareth, why would they stay in Bethlehem for two years, was clearly supernatural. Although the natural astrological explanations are fascinating, it appears that Matthew 2.9 can only be explained as a divine provision. Especially the appearance of the... They're asking, where, where's the Messiah to be born? Well, the star wasn't telling them. Well, and they say, Bethlehem. Then a, a star appears and takes them right to the house. Interesting. And then that brings us to the Magi's question. After the Magi arrived in Jerusalem, they asked, Where is he who is born king of the Jews? For we have seen a star in the east and have come to worship him. Verse 2. So the Magi know enough doctrine to look for the coming of the Messianic king. But they did not know scripture. It's apparent they did not possess the scriptures, were not students of scripture. And thus they went to the capital of Israel to ask those who were supposed to know the scriptures the answer. Very interesting. So they did the right thing. Let's go to who who might know. Now, it is possible that since the Magi are unfamiliar with the prophecy in Micah, they assumed that the special charge would be born in the capital city, the city of kings. That's possible. But Jerusalem is also the place where the greatest scholars would be. Jerusalem possessed the political and religious leaders of the covenant nation. The temple was the center of the people's religious system and the center of the priesthood. They came to the correct place to inquire where would the king be born? The the king prophesied in the Old Testament, the king who would be Davidic. Although they were ignorant of the content of the prophecies regarding the Christ, they were somehow aware that the Jewish scriptures contained the answers regarding this king. The expression, by the way, King of the Jews is an Old Testament Messianic title. The title calls to mind the subscription on the cross, Matthew twenty seven, thirty seven, Luke twenty three, thirty eight, Nathaniel's joyful exclamation, King of Israel in John one forty nine, and the mockery of the chief priests and scribes during the crucifixion, Mark fifteen, thirty two, Matthew twenty seven, forty two. Although the gospel accounts focus our attention on the saving work of Christ, his saving work leads to his resurrection and exaltation as king. Psalm 110, 1 and following. Psalm 2. Psalm 78. There's a number of passages. Jesus' kingship is spiritual, but it affects all areas of life, including politics, economics, and education. For Christians are responsible for applying the word of God to all areas of life. So even though it's not a political kingship, even though he's not going to rule on a throne from jerusalem with mighty armies and bombs and bullets his spiritual reign once people are converted if you have a business you run your business like a christian if you're a politician you're supposed to rule like a christian that means getting rid of abortion that means get, getting rid of sodomite rights and the transgender perversion and all these things that are ruining our nation and bringing god's judgment we worship and serve the lord which means he's a king, Jesus, Savior, Christ, Messiah. And so they're quite aware of this. Now, after telling the authorities about the sign that directed them to Jerusalem, they tell the Jews that they have come to worship the child who is king. The Jewish authorities would have understood this word in the normal Eastern sense of rendering a civil homage, honor, and respect given to great princes or monarchs. Whether or not these magi understood that the child was God, a very God, the second person of the Trinity, the Son of God, uh, come to earth and wanted to render the worship and adoration due to God alone, we do not know. They did offer very expensive gifts, which is the normal practice of friendly nations when a birth occurred in the royal family. Gold, frankincense, and myrrh, these are royal gifts, gifts to royalty, and very expensive the readers of Matthew's gospel would understand whatever kind of worship was offered to Christ, that the Christ child three most certainly deserve the worship offered to Jehovah, the one and only true living God. So if the Magi didn't know, and certainly the Jewish leadership didn't know, we know, and the readers would know, and they're going to make that connection. Jesus is God incarnate, one hundred twenty three, the Son of God two hundred fifteen, in a triumphant sense, and thus we should all be worship he should be worshipped and honored for who he really is. Now, the response of Herod and the, the, those in Jerusalem is that they are troubled by this announcement. The word troubled, tarasso, indicates per, in this context, indicates perplexity mixed with fear. Herod was an evil despotic king who, like most evil despotic kings, was filled with paranoia. Kind of reminds you of Putin. Regarding his hold on to power. Because he was an unbelieving opportunist and pragmatist, he did not have any joy regarding the birth of the Deliverer, but only dread. If someone from the lineage of David, the royal house, the prophesied Messiah, was born, the rightful heir to the throne, the promised king, prophesied in Scripture, had come. What would the people think of Herod who was an Idumean tyrant? Idumeans were not even supposed to be king. He knew he had no ancestral right to the throne and he knew that his role was dependent on his loyalty and connections with imperial Rome. People like Herod are troubled by Christ and his rule because they fear that they will lose their position of honor, riches, and glory that they have obtained by wholeheartedly participating in the evil world system. And these, these, these practical teachings from Scripture are so obviously throughout history. Putin, the oligarchs, they know what they're doing is wrong, they know what they're doing is evil, they're all dependent on Putin, they're all dependent on this for their power, their money, their glory. Same thing. Men who do not bow the knee to Jesus Christ embrace human autonomy and ethics. They conduct their affairs in a corrupt, selfish, self-serving, dishonest manner. They love their sin, and they fear that the presence of the Savior will deprive them of their pleasures, so they don't submit. Now, they may talk the talk a bit. Putin talks about, you know, homosexuality, I believe, is illegal in Russia, and foolish people who call themselves conserved, some Foolish conservatives think he's a wonderful guy, and they're on his side. But Putin, uh, and it's good that they're against homosexuality. It should be illegal in every nation. It should be a death penalty offense if caught by two witnesses. However, murder is wrong. Rape is wrong. Unlawful war is wrong. Theft is wrong. (laughs) So Putin is a satanic antichrist. So any of these so-called conservatives who support him are fools, and they don't know the scriptures. They love their sin, and they fear that the presence of the Savior will deprive them of their pleasures and their power. Our Lord said, John 3, 19 to 20, and this is the condemnation, that the light has come into the world and men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. For everyone practicing evil hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his deeds should be exposed. The teaching in the Bible about Herod, the teaching of the book of Revelation where you've got a tyrant, and you've got false prophets supporting the tyrant, a false prophet. That, Whatever your view is of Revelation, whether you think it's talking about Israel or whether you think it's talking about the papacy or whether you're, you're a futurist and you think it's about a future dictator, these principles taught apply throughout all history. You've got a tyrant, you've got a court and a press that support the tyrant. So all these things repeat themselves throughout history. The Lord Jesus came down from heaven to heal the sick, teach nothing but the truth and save sinners from guilt, the guilt and slavery to sin. But Herod seeks to murder him because he loves this evil world system and he hates God. He hates the truth. Those who live for riches and earthly glory are blind and far from the kingdom of God. Why does the Democratic Party Spew nothing but, nothing but lies every day. Why do the dictators and tyrants, whether in Belarusia or Russia, spew lies and complete nonsense, complete lies every day? Because, when you're not following God and Christ, you have to live the lie, and you have to support living the lie by lying. Their hearts are filled with pride, and they live for the approval of this wicked, unregen- the uh, wicked, unregenerate masses. So do not seek earthly glory or the approval of the world. Such thinking is foolish, evil, vain, and deadly. Paul says, 1 Corinthians 1.26, Not many mighty, not many noble are called. Jesus said, Whoever desires to save his life will lose it. This is Mark 8.34-36. But whoever loses his life for my sake in the Gospels will save it. For What will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Herod, Caesar, Nero, Hitler, Stalin, Putin. They have their power. They have their earthly glory. And then they die and burn in hell. And they go to the lowest parts of hell where the suffering is the greatest, for they committed the greatest of evils. What stupidity. What blindness. And then verse 3. Verse 3 indicates that all Jerusalem was troubled with him. The word all, if you study scripture, does not mean all without exception most of the time. For in Luke's account, we've seen how uh, Simeon, a very godly man, the prophet, and Anna, the testimony of Simon and Annie, who spread the good news to those looking for the Messiah with hope, in Jerusalem. There was a remnant in Jerusalem that were looking for the Messiah, that were filled with joy and praise. If we take into account the broad context of Matthew, which reveals the religious and political leaders' leadership's opposition, hatred, and rejection of Jesus, together with the vast majority of people in the city, their troubled response makes perfect sense. The people of Jerusalem chose Barabbas, a notorious criminal, probably a murderer, over Jesus, 27-21. They even cried out in unison, Let him be crucified, 27 And they followed the apostasy and wickedness of their political and spiritual leaders and were willing to take full responsibility for the death of their Messiah, 27, 24 to to 25. Let his blood be upon us and our children, they cried out. And it was. According to Josephus, two and a half million Jews were killed in Jerusalem because people fled into the city. It had great big walls. It had great protections. Two and a half million were slaughtered. That's pretty rough. The steps of the temple were drenched with blood. This strange reception of the good news of the birth of Christ is part of our Lord's humiliation. He came to his home and they received him not, John 1 eleven. What a spiritually blind, dark, and tragic situation. The leaders and the people of Jerusalem were troubled and upset by the birth of their Savior. Their religion had degenerated into a system of salvation by works. They didn't, in their mind, they didn't really need a savior. They could earn their way into heaven by obeying the law. Their religious and political leaders were so corrupt, they used religion as a source of pride, self-exaltation, and a path to riches. The priesthood was totally corrupt, and they had the money changers, and they were all millionaires, according to scholars. They were filthy rich. They used their religion to get rich, kind of like these prosperity preachers today who are nothing but false prophets and liars. A people unwilling to acknowledge your sin and guilt are troubled by a sinless Savior. Oh, unhappy people to whom godliness is weariness, is a weariness. Herod. A person not normally concerned for spiritual matters gathers all the chief priests and scribes together in order to find the answer to the Magi's question. He wants to learn where the Messianic king will be born. Not to honor the baby, I mean, well, now he's two years old, but to murder him and thus eliminate any possible competition. Now, like modern leftist politicians, he has, does not view the Bible as a way to learn how to be saved and follow God, but as something to be manipulated to increase one's own power and glory. These socialists in the Democratic Party who quote scripture, oh, we're to care for the poor. Well, why don't you quote scripture, the law, which tells you how to care for the poor? There's nothing in there about the state stealing on the behalf of the poor or subsidizing people who are lazy and evil who are addicted to drugs. There's nothing about that in the Bible. The Bible has great ways to to deal with the poor that teach responsibility. And people who are poor because they're taking drugs and lazy, uh, they're not to be helped at all. The plural chief priest includes the current high priest plus all the living past high priests, as well as the adult male members of the current high priest family. It would also include all the leaders of the large corps of priests who served in in their various responsibilities in the temple worship. The term scribes, grammateis, refers to the learned scholars of the religion practiced by the Jewish people at that time. These were regarded as the experts in theology and biblical interpretation. Around 31 years later, many of the same people would plot to murder Jesus and would eventually condemn him to death. Such ecclesiastical experts are exactly what we would expect a spiritually ignorant politician to consult on such matters. Since there is no reference to the elders, this gathering of experts was not the official Sanhedrin, even though many of the people at this meeting were members of the Jewish Council. Now, in our scripture reading today from Mark, I don't know if you noticed, but whenever it talked about the Sanhedrin, it it, it included the word elders. It had priests, scribes, elders. Priests, scribes, elders. Here, elders is not mentioned. So he consulted with the religious authorities and did not consult with the elders. The practice of a king or civil official calling a religious synod, by the way, this is a side note, a little application, or a council to answer a theological question or deal with a dangerous heresy in society, for example, Arianism, Unitarianism, the Trinity, is both biblical and wise. So the calling of a council was not wrong. It's his motive. The Bible teaches a separation between the civil or political function of society and the ecclesiastical function. But it does not teach a separation of the state from true religion, which is essentially atheistic and wicked. The OPC and the PCA and even the RPCNA in their horrible, totally unprofessional, amateurish 1980 testimony all reject the section of the confession about King's or civil magistrates being able to call synods, it doesn't mean that they can order a synod to meet. They don't have that authority. The this, this church can say, no, we don't think this is important. But they can ask a synod to meet when there is a, a crisis. And that's how we got some of the best statements about the doctrine of the Trinity and uh, Chalcedon. These were called synods because there was a problem of heresy. And the, the Westminster Standards are a result of a called synod or council by the parliament. So if you reject that and like the OPC and the PCA does, you're clearly uh, have departed from the Protestant reformation and especially the covenanted Presbyterian reformation that we hold so dear. There can be no separation of the political sphere from religion for one's world and life view and one's concept of ultimate authority is the source of ethics in that society. Okay, the idea that you can be neutral and still have ethics is crazy. I mean, real ethics that are objective. The United States' interpretation of the separation of church and state, which teaches that anyone, anything related to God, Jesus Christ in the Bible, and Christian ethics, etc., must be excluded from our courts and legislation, our government altogether, has given us radical ethical relativism, and many laws that are obviously grossly immoral and absurd. No-fault divorce, the legalization of fornication, adultery, homosexual behavior, uh, homo-marriage, cross-dressing, the so-called transgender perversion, abortion on demand, fiat currency, the redistribution of wealth by state theft in the name of compassion. By rejecting the God of the Bible, Jesus Christ and uh, and the Bible, the United States has proclaimed that man and man alone is the source of law and meaning. So you go, what? you know, Joe, Joe Biden, our satanic president, he's evil, totally evil, totally satanic. He's got one foot in hell already, so old. Uh, he makes these, you know, well, if you are renting an apartment, they don't have to pay rent. These, these, these statements, they're arbitrary. And they're not based on factuality, they're not based on reality. This is the religion or philosophy of secular humanism. Such a worldview is idolatry and points man to both anarchism, lawlessness, and a radical statism. And if you don't believe me, of course the Bible supports what I say, so it has to be true, but if you don't believe me, look at all the states, look at all the big cities controlled by Democrats. Anarchy and statism. Law-abiding citizens, they don't have rights. The criminals, the drug addicts, the prostitutes. They have rights. They're treated as a special class. And that's what secular humanism brings. It carries with it its own judgment. This philosophy this philosophy currently dominates the Democratic Party in the United States. Totally dominates, dominates the Democrats. And that's why, you know, when that, that lady who was up there for the Supreme Court, you know, she's a Roman Catholic, which is demonic, but she's a Roman Catholic, a conservative Roman Catholic, and compared to secular humanists, she's great. But they, they, they were all upset that she believed in God and the Bible. Because they don't want anything influencing human autonomy and statism. They want pure power. <clears throat> Herod's procedure was correct, but his motive was evil and satanic. So the religious leaders give Herod the correct answer from Micah 5.2. And it's a paraphrase, it's not a direct quote. So they said to him, in Bethlehem of Judah, in the original in the Hebrew it says Ephratah, for thus it is written by the prophet, but you Bethlehem in the land of Judah are not the least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. I'm not going to get into all the differences, they're very minor. The quote, uh, the passage quoted is slightly different than the Hebrew, making it easier for Herod to understand. Instead of saying Bethlehem Ephratah, Ephratah is the Hebrew for fruitful, they say Bethlehem in the land of Judah. That's what Herod could understand that. Plus there was more than one Bethlehem. Bethlehem Ephratah was in the land of Judah, but Herod would probably be unfamiliar with the word Ephratah. They also paraphrase too little to be among the thousands of Judah to by no means least, which means essentially the same thing. The fact that Matthew quotes the council's paraphrase or loose translation verbatim reveals the precision of the gospel accounts. They're precise, they're accurate, they're infallible. Now, since this prophecy was well known among the Jews, it is possible, I think it's unlikely, but it's possible that Herod already knew the answer to this question, but he still wanted an official authoritative answer to this question from the highest religious authorities to make sure And this is very interesting in God's providence. Matthew wanted his Jewish readers to see that the highest council of religious scholars of their nation all agreed regarding Bethlehem being the correct place. According to scripture, his birth could only occur in Bethlehem, in Judah. The testimonies that Jesus is the true Messiah, that we've we've seen Luke, Matthew, and the Gospels, are overwhelming. One thing after another, it's Jesus, it's Jesus is Jesus. The Jews of the first century and the Jews of today have absolutely no excuse for rejecting Jesus as the Messiah. And that radio host, uh, who's got his own TV show, Ben Shapiro, who I enjoy, he's very conservative, very, very conservative. Now that Rush Limbaugh is dead, uh, there's not very many fun people to listen to on the radio, he's good. Uh, But his views on religion are satanic to the core and deadly. And he ignores what scripture says and follows the Talmud and Jewish traditions. It's sad. So pray for, pray for him to be converted to Christ. <clears throat> Herod's evil motive begins to manifest itself in verse 7, where he had a secret meeting with the Magi in order to determine the precise time the start of the new king appeared. So he waits till the council, all the people disperse. He has a secret meeting with the Magi. He did not want anyone in the religious leadership to know what he was planning to do. The assumption of this verse and what follows is that the king of the Jews was born the moment the star appeared. That's the assumption. This view is supported by the fact that when the Magi find the Holy Family, they are not staying in a major but they are living in a house. And it also comports with the time needed to analyze the purpose of the star, gather the Magi, travel from Persia or Babylon to Jerusalem. It also comports with the fact that Herod will kill everybody two years old and younger in Bethlehem. Tyrants do not fear God, nor regard His holy and just commandments. They laugh and make sport with holy things. Herod uses inspired prophecy to plan evil in his heart. He is a despicable, satanic tyrant. He wants to know what the Scripture says, not to obey God, but to kill the Messiah, to kill the Jewish king. And then in verse 8, Herod lies to the Magi, so that they would be unwitting informers on the location of the king. Tyrants, who are dependent on power, tyranny. They're dependent on spies and informants to retain their power by threats and acts of violence. We see this, obviously, with Putin in Russia. Uh, uh, 22 uh, people in the Russian press have been murdered since he took power, 22 that we know of. And then uh, we've had a lot of very suspicious deaths among, uh, among the oligarchs, which are probably murders. An innocent, unwitting informer is exceptionally useful in gathering accurate information. And they were happy to comply with Herod's request because they were unaware of Herod's nature. Herod convinces them that he too wants to come and worship the new king. Now, Herod at this time is very old. He'd been ruling for 35 years, for over 35 years. He was old. His health was in decline, and with only months, very likely, given the context, the the, the passage. He's only got months to live. And then he would die. The king who was born when the star appeared was only around two years old the Magi could have easily reasoned that Herod wanted to pay homage to his successor. What does Herod have to worry about? He's, he's a baby. He's, he's, he's a toddler. He's not going to come and take over. Herod's old. Evil tyrants often like to cover their wicked motives and plans with an outward show of piety. And his paranoia is such that he's willing to kill all the babies in Bethlehem. <laughs> he's willing to kill the Messianic king as a two-year-old when he's not even a threat. So, we see the evil of Herod, we see the piety of the Magi, and we see more and more testimonies from the Gospels that Jesus has to be the Christ. And I I, I say, to, you know, I know I've witnessed to Jews, I've witnessed to ultra-Orthodox Jews and, and, and Jews, and I, you know, I say, well, look, Daniel says he's got to come in the Roman Empire. What do you do with that? The temple was destroyed in AD 70. They have no more records. If the Messiah came, nobody could prove it. Jesus has every testimony pointing directly at him. The proof of Jesus being the Messiah is overwhelming. What do we have with Buddha? We have a guy with some interesting ideas who was uh, an ascetic. There's no reason to believe in Buddha at all. There's no reason to believe anything he says. He's an interesting fellow with some ideas. What about what about, uh Muhammad? We know that Muhammad's character, we know this even from Muhammad's uh, sources, that he was evil, that he was a child rapist, that he was a murderer, and that he was a liar, and he got his information either by making it up or he got his information from a demon. So he's a totally satanic figure. And there were no miracles. There's nothing indicating that he's a true prophet of God. Everything pointing in the opposite direction. Same with Joseph Smith. Same with Charles Taze Russell. Same with all the cults. Same with these yogis who come along. Only Christ. He's the only one we need. He's the only true Messiah. He's God of very God. We need to worship him. We need to believe in him as our Savior if we want to go to heaven. He's the only way. And we'll, have, we'll continue this, Lord willing, next week. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for this amazing section of Scripture. We thank you for recording it for our benefit. We ask, Lord, that you would ca- bend our hearts, cause us to be like the Magi, that we would come and worship the King and honor him, Honor him with our very lives, with our worship, with our obedient behavior. Help us, Lord, to show our love of him by keeping your holy law. Convict us when we fall short, for we all do. Cause us to worship him. Cause us to obey him. Cause us to follow him. Deepen our faith. Deepen our love in Christ. In Jesus' name, amen.